Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to you, you, Lord Christ. Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, you, Lord Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here this morning. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father in heaven, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you through your son, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're almost finished with the book of Acts. This is our third to final sermon on in this series, and we come to Acts 20 today, which is one of my favorite passages in the entire book. It's a story about someone dying during a sermon. Over literal application, not encouraged this morning. That has actually happened at All Saints, though, uh, sort of. A number of years ago, we used to have a Sunday afternoon service at Quarencia, the assisted living home in Barton Creek, a few miles away. And one of our elders, a man who's moved away to Nashville named John Rogan, he would, he would take the extra liturgy, liturgy bulletins and he would re-preach the sermon that he's just heard. He would lead the singing a cappella, and they would have a, a mini replica servants service of all saints there at Corinthia, and legendary UT football coach Daryl Royal would always attend as well, as well as would this one woman who would be wheeled in in her wheelchair every week. She was elderly, but she came in this one Sunday, very alive, singing, listening, and then during the sermon, she seemed to go to sleep, and she actually passed away during the sermon. And John came to me and said, I didn't know my preaching was that bad, and I said, maybe it's just that good just took her straight to heaven. But no um, dying during my sermon, please, regardless if the preaching's good or bad. The other thing that this sermon is about, besides someone dying in the midst of a sermon, is about the ministry of encouragement. Do you see that word? Did you hear it as Holly read? There in verse one, you read the word encouragement, verse two as well. And then in verse 12, at the very end of our passage is this word comfort. Actually the same work throughout in Greek. It's this, this word that we find here, encouraging us to consider what happens. So what is the ministry of encouragement? Two points this morning to try and answer that question. Number one, importance. And number two, appearance. First of all, importance. Why is this ministry important? This Greek word is the word parakaleo. It literally means to call alongside for help. And a paraclete in Roman civil court of the day was someone who was called in to help defend someone who was on trial to give a supporting testimony of them. And a paraclete is the word that is used in John 14, which Josh just read for you, a word that becomes a name for the Holy Spirit. Because there in verse 16 of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Helper is the word paraclete, and there's about as many translations for this word as there are Bible translations. King James Version says the comforter. Others say the counselor, the advocate. The New American Standard, like the ESV, which we are reading from this morning, says helper. Maybe the best one, my favorite, 
is the one in the message by Eugene Peterson that simply says the friend. We have a number of students here this morning. And students, I know that you've gone back to, to school this week. And so everything that I'm going to say over the next few minutes, I want you to think about yourself at school. Because one of the most soul-crushing and difficult things for anyone to endure, a child or adult, but especially a child, is to move into a new place at a new time without a friend. And there are many friendless children and students at your school. So what might the Lord be calling you to in order to help, to befriend, to defend, to initiate with those around you? But for everyone, notice that Jesus says another helper, another helper. Jesus sees himself, in other words, as the first helper, the first encourager, the first true friend. And this passage in the book of John also insists at multiple times, Jesus says that he is the true revelation of the Father. So what you see and hear from Jesus is also true of the Father. And so not just Jesus, not just the Holy Spirit, but God the Father, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all see of themselves and speak of themselves as those who are doing the ministry of encouragement. And that's the first reason that this is important, because this ministry is the ministry of God. That's why Paul and all the other apostles throughout the book of Acts are continually engaging in what they speak of as the ministry of encouragement. I was somewhat surprised as I prepared for this sermon time and time again to find this word woven throughout everything that we've looked at so far. Every time there's a crisis, a catastrophe in the book of Acts, all of a sudden one of the apostles shows up and so too does this word and them doing this ministry that this word speaks of to churches, churches in turmoil, churches in crisis, but not just Christians and entire gatherings of Christians, but also individuals who are not yet Christians. If you remember back several weeks ago, we preached on Acts chapter 18 and the Ethiopian eunuch, this sexually altered, sexually damaged man who had castrated himself in order to ascend through the ranks of the Ethiopian political elite. So he's a member of the Ethiopian court, but he was also a convert to Judaism. And so he was really a man between two worlds, one who didn't fit in anywhere. He's this epitome, this picture of isolation and loneliness. And in Acts chapter eight, we find him alone in crisis. He's trying to read from the scriptures, but he can't understand them. And Acts chapter eight says that he looked down, seeing Philip, he invited him into his chariot in order to sit with him. It's exactly what it says. He invited him in to sit with him in the midst of his struggle, his personal turmoil, his loneliness. And that word invited, the same word, the word parakaleo, calling him in to help, to sit beside him, with him. And this happens time and time again throughout the book of Acts. Our passage is no different. There's an uproar, our passage here in Acts chapter 20 says, the uproar was a riot in which two members from this church were dragged into the middle of the city and they were almost torn to pieces. And that happens, Paul shows up and encourages them. And then he goes from city to city and town to town throughout Macedonia, encouraging the other Christians. And then finally he comes to Troas. There is this crisis where a young man falls out of a window and dies. And what does Paul do? The ministry of encouragement again, over and over. And I want us to consider what it is that we think Paul said to them after the fear, the confusion, the, sh the sadness, the shock of seeing one of their own fall out of a window and die. So, so meaninglessly they think. What would you have said in that moment? What do you think Paul said? I wonder if he didn't say something similar to Acts chapter 14, verse 22. 
which I've mentioned to you time and time again. It's a key verse to understanding that everything is happening throughout the book of Acts. At that point, Paul is back in Lystra, another mob, another riot. This time he's the one that's stoned. He's almost killed, left for dead, gets back up, goes back into the city. And this is what it says. It says, Paul went back, strengthening the souls of his disciples, encouraging them, same word, encouraging them to continue in the faith, despite what they've seen, despite what they've experienced, and saying to them that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. This is another reason, another part of the importance of this ministry. It's because what Paul says is true. It's what Acts is saying to us, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If that wasn't true, we wouldn't need this ministry of encouragement continually woven throughout the book, but it is. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we believe this, that through many tribulations, through many difficulties, we must enter the kingdom of God? Does this in any way set our expectations for what life is like in this world following Christ? Because I can flip it and the same thing is true. Without many tribulations, we won't enter the kingdom of God because we won't want it. We won't feel the need for it. We won't love and long for the God of this kingdom. We won't see him as our greatest need, but with many tribulations, we will, or at the very least, we'll be far more likely to because our tribulations can be received as a grace of God. Our tribulations, our trials, the crises we go through can be received as a grace from God. How else will we deal with them? How else will we deal with the brutality of life? A couple Saturdays ago, Alyssa and I went to the movie for the first time in about two years or so. We saw the film Stillwater. Not surprising because yes, it's about Stillwater, Oklahoma, near where I grew up and where I went to school. Oklahoma State features somewhat significantly in this movie, Go Pokes, and the, the cowboy marching band even makes an appearance there. Matt Damon plays the main character and it's, he, he plays it pretty well. He's an ex-con, recovering alcoholic, a roughneck oil worker that has a giant bald eagle tattoo on his shoulder right above the, a tattoo of a skull. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, it's pretty representative. I get it. It's not untrue. He plays it pretty well. He's believable. But it's a discouraging movie. I mean, it's a gut-wrenching movie. Uh, People like Matt Damon and his character, people from working class rural Oklahoma, they're not portrayed in a very positive light. And there are moments of humor, but all too often, the thought-provoking, interesting dialogue and film and everything, it turns to this gut-wrenching movie in which the final line that you remember as you're walking away is, life is brutal. And as I walked out, I, I wondered, is is that a primary and a predominant sentiment in our culture right now? Are they tapping into something that's true? Everyone in the back row where we were sitting was crying, weeping, left with thinking life is brutal. And so I went home and I read all sorts of reviews about it. And many of them keyed into this one phrase. One that I read said this, if there's a kernel of hard earned blunt wisdom to be gleaned from Stillwater, this is it. Life is brutal. It's a sentiment repeated by both father, Matt Damon and daughter, Abigail Breslin, with a resoluteness that comes from experience. But it's unclear if Stillwater has anything other to impart than this defeated sentiment. Life is brutal, and then you walk out of the movie. And some of you know what that's like right now. Some of you feel that acutely because whatever it is that's going on in your life, maybe an illness, it may be isolation and loneliness like I spoke of earlier, it may be anxiety, angst, et cetera, maybe your marriage. It may be that there is a child that, of yours that is struggling. And you need to know that our passage in the Bible as a whole, the book of Acts, doesn't disagree with the film. 
It doesn't disagree with that line. There is a brutality to life in this world, and the Bible is very honest about that, unapologetically honest. And like this movie Stillwater, our passage moves from humor to tragedy so quickly. There's a young man named Eutychus, strange name. Eutychus means lucky in Greek, so let the irony sit in there. A man named Lucky falls asleep during a sermon. How many really long sermons have you sat through? One of you are thinking, well, I'm sitting through one right now. Don't answer that. But, but there's, a, there's a note of humor that Luke seems to, to try and weave throughout the story, which he does through often, often throughout the book of Acts. It seems like he sat through a few long sermons by Paul. Verse seven, he says, Paul prolonged it. Verse nine, still going, still longer. So he sneaks in some humor there, but then humor suddenly turns to tragedy in just a few lines. And then when this man named Lucky falls out of the door and dies, we realize that this is what tragedy is like, not just for them. This is what tragedy is like in this world. One author put it this way, he said, in our world, tragedy quickly engulfs the flow of the ordinary. Engulfs the flow of the ordinary, unexpectedly, out of nowhere seemingly. And this is what we've seen this last week in Afghanistan, everything that we've seen, the pictures, people holding on to, to, to planes as they try and take off. We're in Haiti, Josh prayed for both earlier another earthquake, another tropical storm? Or is this not what we've all experienced together over the past 18 months or so with the pandemic, with COVID? We thought we were done with it, now we're back into it. A friend of mine, a close friend of mine, a pastor in my accountability group, he lost his father just last week to COVID. Two weeks ago, he was relatively healthy. His, his father has struggled with Parkinson's for years. But two weeks ago, fine, and then he died this week. So we've all known difficulty and confusion and, and, and anger and rising animosity, which seems to be engulfing so much of our culture right now. And it's, it's tragedy engulfing the flow of the ordinary. We've all known it. But part of the point of this passage is to say that sooner or later, this happens to everyone. Sooner or later, everyone falls out of a window. Sooner or later, tragedy engulfs the ordinary. Death always sneaks in. Sin eventually always creeps up. But it's not out of nowhere. This is our world. This is the world in which we live. This is what we have to deal with. And before anyone can or will turn to and believe in and follow after Jesus, they've got to feel the weight of this broken world and all its brutality press in upon them to the point where they realize that where they've been crushed down to, that they're not going to get up unless God rescues them and picks them up himself. This is why Jesus so famously began his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are crushed. Blessed are those who are crushed. Blessed, he goes on, blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven and they will be comforted. Same word, same word. Comforted by God himself if they will come to him and many will. Many will because they've been made ready to receive the comfort and encouragement of Jesus through their ordinary being engulfed by their tragedy. And I never say what I said just a few minutes ago with people immediately after tragedy, tragedy strikes. I'm gonna say it again because when or I or others sit with you at some point in tragedy, I'm not gonna say it then, but I'm gonna say it now and hope that you'll remember it then. And that is our tribulations can be received as a grace of God. They can be received as a major means by which God gives himself to us as our paraclete, as the help that we need. Because in the book of Acts, tragedy is always followed by the ministry of encouragement, which unlocks so often the key, the kingdom of God to those who will enter in. That's the importance. 
Second point, the appearance. What is the appearance? If that's the importance, what's the appearance? What does it look like, this ministry of encouragement? Well, it looks strange. There's, there's no doubt from our passage and the Old Testament passage, it looks strange. Look at how Luke describes what Paul does here. In verse 10, it says that he, he bent over this boy who's died. He bent over him, knelt over him, and then he took him up into his arms. And so the first thing that Paul does is he embraces what is dead. And that's about all we can say about Luke's description here. But there are two Old Testament stories that I'm convinced are echoing in this passage and that Luke very intentionally sets Paul in this prophetic pattern that's set long before he lived. And it began in our Old Testament reading from 1 Kings chapter 17. And we didn't read all of it, but you might know the story. There's a famine and God sends Elijah to this widow to miraculously sustain her throughout this drought and this famine and do so through a jar of flour that will never empty. It's always miraculously replenished. But then out of, seemingly out of nowhere, tragedy overwhelms and engulfs the ordinary and her son dies. And for a widow's son to die in this day and age is for, someone, is for her to lose everything. All, all source of security, all source of protection, all form of provision. She loses everything, but then Elijah stretches out himself on the boy's body three different times, body to body, lays upon him, stretches himself out, and the boy miraculously comes back to life. And this isn't the only time it happens. Several books later, 2 Kings chapter 4, Elijah's successor, Elisha, does the exact same thing with another boy who has died. But in that text, it says that he put his mouth on the boy's mouth, his eyes on the boy's eyes, his hands on the boy's hands. Three different times, stretches himself out, body to body, both prophets symbolically joining themselves to those who have died and symbolically acting as though their life is being imparted back to them as if some sort of union was created and they absorb the boy's deaths and then the life that they have within their body is imparted to them and they live again. And Paul does something similar here. And what I want you to notice is that very last line in our Old Testament reading, verse 24. Notice when the widow says that now she believes. Now, she, now I know that you are a man of God and now that I know that your, the word in your mouth is true, when? After the, the famine and the drought began? No. After they were so amazingly, abundantly provided for in the midst of that tragedy? No. Not after the first tragedy, not after the abundance, not after the magnitude of blessing. Then the next tragedy strikes, and it's tragedy upon tragedy, just like Acts 14 says, through many tribulations. And then she, she loses her son, but she receives her son back. And then she sees that the prophet has power in his body to give new life. And then she says, now I know that the word on your mouth is true because there's power in your body to receive new life. Now, who should that sound like to us? These stories, all of them, the, the story here in Acts chapter 20, they're all meant to, to make us think and to lead us and ultimately to give us Jesus because we have so much more to say than life is brutal. We have so much more to say and to offer than dead, defeated sentiment. Because in taking a human body in the person of Jesus, God has embraced what's dead. The God of the Bible, regardless of what you are going through, you need to know that the God of the Bible is not aloof. He is not disengaged. He is not distant. He is in no way immune from what you, a loved one, a friend, a neighbor are going through because he has fully entered into it, to all of it, to join himself to it, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, in order to take from us everything that's broken, everything that's dead, everything that's dying, and to impart his very life to us, the life of God that is in his body. That is what God has done for us. 
And that is the Christian gospel. That's what Paul preached on for so long. Probably something like he said in Galatians chapter two, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, my death has been joined to his death. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He has communicated his life to me and I've received it by faith. And now the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. To be a Christian is to be the widow's son. To be a Christian is to be like this young man, Eutychus. It is to accept that Jesus has embraced you. Do you believe that? Can you accept that, that Jesus has embraced you? Everything that the world rejects, everything that you feel like you have to hide from the world, everything dead, dark, and broken, do you believe that Jesus has embraced that and that he has taken it from you and that he has in its stead imparted his very life, the very life of God now courses through the veins of your soul if you are a Christian? And to be a Christian means to accept that and then to have your life transformed so that you live as though it's true, as though you live as though that you will receive everything good and God-given back, just like these widows. Everything good and God-given, that, that sin, death, your own foolishness, the brokenness of this world has taken from you, you will receive it back. All rights, all wrongs righted. All things made new. That is this message of encouragement. That yes, Life in this world is brutal, but in Christ, all of life is given back, restored, beautified, heavenized. This past week, I was actually in Oklahoma for a college reunion. I was there with a number of my closest friends, fraternity brothers, pledge brothers. We do this each and every year. It's very ordinary for us, you might say. But this year, one of my closest friends received a call from his wife while he was there with us that the test that they had been running came back and she has a very aggressive form of lymphoma, of, of blood cancer. She's gonna have to have surgery next few days and then she's gonna have to go through some significant aggressive chemotherapy. I've known her since we were 18 years old, 45 now, she has kids my age. So imagine this, imagine the setting. There's about 20 of us or so on a couple of boats in the middle of the lake. Uh, one of my pledge brothers takes this man who's going to receive this call back to the house in order so he can talk to his wife. Then they come back and I and a few others know what's going on. So we all gather around and he begins to try and tell us what's happening with his, with his wife. He actually can't get it out. And so he asked me if I will be the one that will tell everyone what's going on. And so I do, we hear that, that news. And then what did we do? What do we do? Ministry of encouragement. We prayed, not everyone there is a Christian, but we all prayed. We embraced him, we cried with him and for them. And I and a few others told him what he as a devout Christian man already knows, which is something that we say each and every week at our Eucharist service, which is Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again and he will make all things new. All things good and God-given will be restored fully and completely. So we said that to him. And then he went home and embraced his wife and said the same thing and did the same thing. And you need to know that you can do the same. By God's grace, you can do the same. You can participate in the ministry of encouragement that we find here. The first thing you have to do is you have to acknowledge what's dead within you, what's, what's still not right, where sin and death and brokenness still have their sway over you and whatever that may be for you. It may be anger, it may be discontentment, envy, jealousy, maybe the way that you speak, the way that you speak to others, the way that you gossip about others, maybe what you withhold 
your time, your money, maybe sadness, depression, burnout, whatever it is, whatever it is, admit it and stop hiding it. Admit it and bring it into the light and acknowledge to God and others, this is true of you and you need help. You need help and then you ask for help. The first step in participating in the ministry of encouragement is being comforted yourself and willing to be embraced by God and by God's people. And then secondly, if that's true of you, you will then be able, you will find in yourself new capacities to embrace what's dead in and around others. Like Paul, you won't shy away. You'll be willing to go down to embrace what's broken and, 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 and dead and diseased in others that you might share the life of God that you have within yourself with them. One thing that I told my friend before he went to see his wife is I said, you are her husband for a reason. You are her husband and not someone else. And it's true of us too. You are your spouse's spouse. You are the parent to your children. You live where you live. You work where you do. You're in the neighborhood where you are in order that you who have been encouraged by Christ might be means of encouragement to others. So offer yourselves to others with the very same encouragement that you have received New life comes that way. Life is brutal, but the Lord will beautify the life of the Christian that we live. And through us, he will offer it and communicate it to others. That is the ministry of reconciliation. That is the ministry of encouragement. That is our hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we've already said, that you would assure us that there is a river that makes glad the city of God, that you have poured out your spirit upon your people, that you might encourage us in the midst of our life in this world, and that you might make us as your people into means of encouragement for others. Continue to do that for us even now so that we might be able to go forth from here and do that in your name for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.